Once more, I would like to call your attention to the prayer offered by the Apostle Paul for the Ephesians, the prayer recorded in the third chapter of his epistle to the Ephesians, reading from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner men, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Now we are considering in particular at the moment this particular request and petition uh, to the effect that they might come to know with all saints this love of Christ which passeth knowledge. We've established, I think, the fact that this is an experimental knowledge, that it is the, not that which he describes in the word comprehend, which is conceptual, but that this is truly experimental. We've seen that that is the teaching of the Scripture. You get it in the Old Testament as well as in the New. But, of course, it's clearly offered to us in the New uh, with a greater richness and depth than was possible under the Old because of the work and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The same essential experience, but still clearer, still more evident now. The epistle to the Hebrews tells us that they without us could not inherit all this, but that now it is possible. And we have seen that this is confirmed and substantiated by the experiences of many throughout the long history of the church. It's not confined to any particular type or class of person. It doesn't postulate anything in us in a natural sense except our sense of need and of realization. And so we now have come to the very practical question of considering what exactly we have to do in order that we may come to this blessed knowledge. Let me again remind you that the people for whom the Apostle offers this prayer were converted people. They had already been brought from darkness to light. He's reminded them of all that. This is not a prayer for unbelievers. It's a prayer for Christians. The Apostle says you were Christians, but you at the moment seem to know very little about what is possible for you in a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his love, in a direct, immediate, and personal sense. Now then, we are therefore considering it from the very practical standpoint. What are we to do? Well, I issued certain warnings last Sunday morning. The important one is this. We must never conceive of this in a mechanical manner. It's not something that happens automatically. If we do something, then we have it. No, it isn't that. 
we must always remember that we are dealing with a very personal matter here. It is to know the love of Christ. Not love as a vague general sentiment, but to know his love in particular. And uh, therefore we have seen that uh, we must never regard it from that purely mechanical standpoint. But at the same time, while we do thus see that it is his prerogative to show us his love, and that he does it in his own time, when he chooses and where he chooses. And there's nothing, it seems to me, more wonderful and more romantic about the Christian life than just that. That so often, when we think we deserve the manifestation of his love, we don't get it. But when we are feeling lost and hopeless and abandoned, and at the end of ourselves, suddenly... He reveals himself to us. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. Sometimes he surprises us in that way. Well, you see, this is because it's personal. If a thing works mechanically like a machine, there are no surprises it does the same thing. It keeps on repeating it mechanically, and apart from accidents, you can prophesy what's going to happen. But that is never true in the realm of personal relationships, and thank God it isn't. There is always this other incalculable element. There is this sovereignty of personality. And this, of course, is supremely true in the case of the love of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that at all costs, we must avoid that terrible pitfall and danger of saying, well, now I've done this and that and all these things, and still he hasn't shown me his love. That's quite fatal. It's an approach that uh, makes a realization and an experience of his love quite impossible. No, no. We realize that it is his prerogative, his right. It is a kind of reward that he gives us. That's the way the New Testament seems to me to describe it. It's uh, his rewarding us. It's his smiling upon us. Well, very well, bearing the, all that in mind, I say that nevertheless it is true. According to the teaching of the scriptures and according to the teaching and the experiences of those who have gone before us who have experienced so richly this knowledge of the love of Christ, it is clear, I say, in this teaching, that though we cannot dictate, as it were, and uh, argue that because I do this, I must have it, nevertheless, there are certain things which, if I may so phrase it, put us in the way of the blessing. You will find that it is people who have done certain things who generally have come to the knowledge, not because they have done them only, but obviously... To do them is a right thing in and of itself. And as I'm going to show you, we please him as we do them. Then, bearing all that as a background in our minds, let us proceed once more to the detailed consideration of what it is we must do. The overriding and overruling principle still is to seek the person, to seek him. Not to seek uh, general blessings at this point, but to seek him himself. Now then, how do we do that? Well, there are many ways in which we can do this. I simply want to mention uh, some of them uh, to you this morning. And I take them up, obviously, in detail. 
I'm increasingly convinced that so many go through their Christian life in this world without this knowledge simply because they have never come from the realm of generalities to particulars. You have to start with the general, but you must come also to the particular. And if we don't come down to details, it'll avail us nothing. It's one thing to be reading a book with a great experience and to say, I'd give the whole world if I could only have that, and then do nothing. We have got to put ourselves in the way of the blessing, as I think I indicated, blind Bartimaeus did. Take up your pitch by the wayside. He tends to travel along certain roads. Very well, let's make sure that we're on the side of such roads. Well, now then, the first, obviously, therefore, is this, the word of God. This uh, word uh, is a word which is given in order to reveal him to us. That really is the purpose of the word. It is to reveal the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is true of the Old Testament as well as the New. You recall how after his own resurrection he took his incredulous disciples through the law and the prophets and the book of Psalms. And he just showed himself to them in all these scriptures showing how all these were speaking of him. Very well, then, you may find him anywhere in the Scriptures. The hymn we've just, we sang at the beginning reminded us of that. It is the heaven-drawn picture of Christ, the living Word. That is, in reality, what the Bible is. Not only the four Gospels. There we see him in his earthly state of humiliation. But you see him in these epistles also. They're all describing him. They're all portraits of him. So wherever you are in the Bible, you will find him if you only know how to do so. Now then, that is the thing I want to emphasize this morning. You know, it's possible even to read the scriptures in a thoroughly profitless manner. If you simply read the scriptures mechanically because you believe it's right and good to read the scriptures, you'll probably derive very little benefit from so doing. You may get an immediate sense of self-satisfaction and self-righteousness because you've read your portion for the day, but that isn't to read the scriptures. Every bit of intelligence we possess is needed as we read the scriptures, all our faculties and propensities. And even that's not enough. We must pray for the illumination and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, I mean something like this. That whenever we go to the scriptures, we must talk to ourselves before we start reading. There is a sense in which I feel it's useless to start reading unless you talk to yourself. Oh, how often have we done that? We do this not only with the Bible, but we do it with other books and textbooks, don't we? It's possible for a man to spend hours with an open textbook in front of him. He's looking at the pages and the words, but because he isn't concentrating, he isn't taking it in. You can do more in five minutes sometimes when you're really concentrating than in a couple of hours when your mind is vague and loose and you're not able to apply yourself. There is no book where you need greater application and concentration of all your powers and faculties than the Bible. So we must talk to ourselves, and we must say, well now, what am I going to expect here? 
Why am I reading it? What's my object? And we mustn't stop at saying, oh, it's a good thing because it's God's word. I'm suggesting we must go beyond that. We must say to ourselves, this is God's word through which he speaks to men still. It's a living word. And he has so often spoken to the saints through this book. You go through their experiences and you will find that so many of them, indeed, if not all of them, will say that they have had their greatest personal experiences of the love of Christ to them as they were reading the scriptures. Suddenly he seems to meet them through a particular word. He comes right out of the book, as it were, and they know that he personally is speaking to them. It was through this medium. Well, he's provided it for that reason. You see, nothing is so difficult as meditation and contemplation. We know that from experience, don't we? Isn't it a very difficult thing to meditate and to concentrate? A very great man in these matters once said a phrase like this. He said, uh, some people, he said, think reading. Some people think speaking or talking. And he said, the salt of the earth think inwardly. It's a very difficult thing to meditate and to contemplate. So if we'd been left to ourselves and just that, how difficult we should find it. Thank God he stooped to our weakness. He's provided us with the word, with the picture, with the instruction and the teaching. Very well then, I say, let's take full advantage of it. Let's use it. Let's go to it seeking him. Now, when you take your Gospels, for instance, just remind yourself that they are portraits of him. That is what he was like when he was here in this world. And go on to remind yourself that he is still like that. So we must deliberately apply our minds to the seeking of him and this knowledge of his love. In other words, we should go to the scripture with an air of great expectation. We should go with it to it almost in a state of excitement. Saying, is he going to speak to me personally as well as indirectly through the word? It is the heaven-drawn picture of Christ, the living word. And then I say, having seen the picture, remember that he is still the same. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That was the wonderful, thrilling discovery that was made by these various apostles who saw him either directly or in vision after his ascension. You'll get a description of that in the first chapter of the book of Revelation, how John tells us that there, when he was on the Isle of Patmos and he had that vision and he was frightened, this same Lord put his hand upon his shoulder. He's still the same, though in glory. There he is. Well, now, I say we must realize that and remember that. Not have some vague notion of the Lord Jesus Christ, but realize he's still the same. He is the lamb that once was slain. He was dead, but he is alive forevermore. And we must therefore seek him. We've been given all this to help us. And we must apply it. So the great principle which I'm laying down, and I leave it at this this morning, is this. That a true reading of the Bible involves thought, meditation, 
preparation of ourselves. And above all, this objective, this expectancy, this anticipation, this looking for him, and this readiness ever to find him. Very well, I leave it at that. Work it out for yourselves. But this is God's way of bringing us to this knowledge, and we neglect it at our peril. The next thing that I must mention, obviously, therefore, in this order is prayer. And here again, I have to make precisely the same point. We can spend a lot of time in prayer, and yet even all that can be useless. That is why timetables, though essential to so many of us, can be the greatest danger of all in these matters. I was saying last Sunday morning that uh, spiritual instruction often seems to be contradicting itself. It isn't, of course. But we do have to realize the need of knowing ourselves. And, of course, that is where you need pastors and teachers, as this epistle goes on to tell us in the next chapter. If I may use an illustration, let me put it to you like this. You know that with this modern scientific farming, they have discovered this kind of thing increasingly. If you want to get the best crops out of your land, well, it pays you to make a scientific analysis of your land. You take a specimen of the land, you send it to the laboratory, and they will tell you whether it's too acid or whether it's too alkaline. And you have to treat it accordingly. If you put your alkalis into land that's already too alkaline, well, of course, you'll just ruin everything. But if your land is acid, it needs alkali. Yes, but the interesting thing is this, that as you go on doing that, you will find that the land seems to have changed its character altogether. So you can't say because your first specimen was acid that forever and forever now that land needs alkali. You may well reach a point in which it's become too alkaline, then you have to give the acid. And you look as if you're contradicting yourself, don't you? but actually you're just being intelligent. You are not putting down a flat rule. You realize that there are living processes even in the land, and that therefore you have to treat it as it is. It's exactly the same with the human frame and constitution. You can so correct an over-acidity in your constitution that you can produce a new disease. A kind of alkalosis. You've become too alkaline suddenly. And you may have to take some acid once more. Whereas originally your problem was how to deal with the hyperacidity. Now then, I'm saying that it's exactly like that in the realm of the spiritual life. We start off by being slack and indolent. And we say, no, we must have a timetable. And before you know what you're doing, you're a slave to your timetable. And what you need to be told is forget your timetable. And come back to the freedom of the spirit. You see, it's because of our sinfulness. And we go from one extreme right over to the other, so that all along we have to be knowing ourselves, we have to be examining ourselves and watching ourselves and making quite sure that we've never lost sight of that grand objective, which is to know him and to know his love. So that once more I put it like this that there is nothing more important in prayer than preliminary meditation. Preliminary consideration of what we're going to do. What the saints have called recollection. You talk to yourself about yourself. Oh, I can never say that too frequently. 
It's there we fail. We don't talk enough to ourselves. We must talk to ourselves about ourselves. It's no use beginning to talk to God and praying unless you realize your own condition. Because, you see, we may be going into the presence of God in a very false state. We may feel that we've been dealt with very harshly and very unkindly and cruelly. We're full of self-pity. And we go to God in that way and ask him for certain things. Whereas if we had really stopped and uh, analyzed ourselves and spoken to ourselves, uh, quite honestly, we may have discovered that uh, we were just in a thoroughly bad and unhealthy state, that we really needed to be whipped spiritually, and that the trouble was essentially in ourselves. If only we'd done that, you see how different the prayer would be. Very well, then, it's not just enough to pray. We must examine ourselves, and then, having done that, we must realize what we are going to do. We must meditate upon this again. We must realize the possibility. And above all, I say, we must think again of him, our great high priest above. With joy we meditate the grace of our high priest above, says Isaac Watts in that hymn. And we must do that. And realize all that. And it will transform our praying. We'll be seeking him and seeking something active. And therefore, another very important thing is this. Thanksgiving is a very vital part of this matter. Thanksgiving. The danger is when you read a great passage like this, and when you read the experiences of others, you tend to say, well, now that's what I want. I give the whole world for that. And so you go, and you begin to pray for this and plead for it, and you go on and on and on. And you do nothing but that. Oh, what a fallacy that is. It's like the child who's always making demands and requests of the parents and never shows any appreciation whatsoever. Do you know God delights to hear our thanksgiving and our prayers? That's why the apostle you see in writing to the Philippians puts it like this, in nothing be anxious. But in all things with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Oh, if we believe that he's there, though we may not be expert in realizing his presence and though we may never have known his love, if we believe and go by faith, well then thank him, pour out your heart unto him in thanksgiving and praise. If you believe that he has died for you, thank him for dying for you. How often have you done so? You see, this is the test of our faith. If a human being does us a kindness, we thank them at once. We say we believe Christ died for our sins. How often do we thank him for that? Thank him, and the more you thank him and express your feeble love to him, the more likely you are to know his love to you. Thanksgiving and praise. The more that is prominent in our prayer life, the more... We shall know his love which passeth knowledge. I just leave it at that principle again, elaborate it for yourselves, in order that we may pass on to the next principle, which is equally obvious. We must please him in all things. Now, this is something which is quite obvious, surely, if you think of it in terms of any human analogy. If you love any person, well, you instinctively try to please that person. 
And the more you please them, the more they will show their love to you. It really is as simple as that. Now, our Lord himself has put this for us quite plainly and clearly in the Gospel according to St. John, chapter 14, verse 21. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Now, nothing could be clearer and plainer than that. And yet, how often do we forget it? We tend to divide our lives up into compartments. I'm reading the scripture, or I'm reading some good book, or the life of a saint, and I see this wonderful thing, and I say, no, that's it, I want that, and I pray for it urgently and plead for it. And then I meet the hard facts and difficulties and problems of life, and I seem to forget it all. I become irritable, I become hasty, I become unkind and impatient. I think on the human level again, and I do things that I shouldn't do. I say, the prayer is really of very little value. The Bible's a very practical book. He that keepeth my commandments, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. He wants us to show our love to him in his com keeping his commandments, and we do show it in keeping his commandments. Very well then, I say, let's make absolutely certain of this. If we really do want to know him and his love, well then, I say, do everything that he's ever told you to do. It's all here for us. There's no excuse. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in these epistles. It's everywhere in his own teaching. Let us therefore, I say, give ourselves to the keeping of his commandments. Or let me put that negatively. Let us realize the importance of the avoidance of displeasing him. I perhaps should even have put that first. But it's absolutely vital. There are certain things that are just incompatible with him. Now, sometimes that put, that's put in a phrase that I abominate. Uh, people talk about taking Christ with them. Uh, that's not the way to put it. We don't take him with us. The question is, uh, will he accompany us if we do certain things? Because we know perfectly well that he will not. There are certain things he didn't do in the days of his flesh, and he still will not do them. There are certain things that are quite incompatible with him. The scripture puts this very clearly in this way. Take, uh, for instance, what we are told about grieving the spirit. All the teaching about grieving the spirit is equally true about grieving the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the importance, you see, of conceiving of him and thinking of him and of reminding yourself that because you're a Christian, Christ is in you and the Holy Spirit is in you. Wherever you go, whatever you do, if you want to know the manifestation of his love, therefore, don't do things that you know that he cannot abide, things that he hates, the things that sent him to the death of the cross. Avoid them. Forgive me if I use... A very simple illustration, I use it because 
It has often helped me personally and still helps me. It's a simple, almost a ridiculous story, but it's something that uh, happened within the realm of my own experience, and it seems to tell me, at any rate, all that I try to say to myself at this particular point. I remember when I was a boy in the part of the country where I was brought up, an agricultural rural district, where we all know everything about everybody else and about one another, and knew everything that was happening. And there was a man in that area, a farmer's son, that was very much in love with a young lady, Oh, as we tend to put it in our folly, she belonged to a better class of society than he did. There it was. He was in love with her and wanted to marry her. And she was in love with him. But there was one problem. This poor fellow, like so many others, had one weakness, and that was the temptation when he went to the market town once a week to drink and to drink too much. And he would battle against this. She hated this. And he would strive against it. Then suddenly he'd break out, and she'd have nothing to do with him. And the whole neighborhood was watching this. And on and on it went, and she made it perfectly plain to him that as long as he touched this, she'd have nothing to do with him. And we all wondered what would happen. Well, what did happen was this, you see, that that man so loved her that he forsook drink once and forever. And she received him and they got married and lived very happily. Oh, it's very simple, but you know, it's the whole essence of this matter. The choice that that man had to confront was this. Which did he really want them all? This girl that he loved, all this drink and the friends and all that surrounded that on the market day. It only troubled him on that particular day. Which was it? And he had to arrive at a basic decision. And his love for her was so great that he gave that up once and forever. And he won her and she manifested her love to him. Now, I say it really is as simple as that. There are certain things that the Lord Jesus Christ hates and abominates. It's simple logic, therefore, to argue that if we hold on to them and indulge in them, we really have no right to expect the manifestation of his love. You realize what I'm saying? You can be a Christian without knowing his love in this way. But if you want to be the kind of Christian that Paul wanted these Ephesians to be, well, then I say you give that up. Cost what it may, whatever it is, let it go. And then you will find that in his own time, he will smile upon you and manifest himself and his love to you. You know, every one of us knows individually, the thing or the things that are standing between us and him. Let them go, I say. Strike them out even though they may be legitimate in and of themselves, if you are aware in your heart that it's a hindrance, let it go. If thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. If thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. 
That's the essence of wisdom in this matter. Please him positively. Avoid everything that you know is displeasing in his most holy sight. And don't merely do this for the period of Lent. Do it forever. Do it always. Very well, that brings me to my next point, which is this. The fourth principle is the principle of importunity. Or, if you like it in another word, concentration, wholeheartedness. Oh, this is a great theme in the scripture. I could expand every one of these points. I'm simply anxious to give it to you in essence this morning. Do you remember Jeremiah 29, 13? And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall seek me with all your heart. You remember how we have it in the oratorio? If with all your heart ye truly seek me, ye shall truly find me. But you notice the emphasis, with all your heart, ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. Not a bit of it left out. Did you notice Psalm 86, verse 11? Unite my heart to fear thy name. The man is conscious of the difficulty. So he prays God even to unite his heart that he may seek him with the whole of his being. You remember our Lord's teaching on the single eye? If thine eye be single, thy whole body also shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body also shall be full of darkness. There is nothing more important in this whole realm than the having of the single eye. Looking in one direction, concentration, shutting everything else out of the field of vision. This kind of monomania, if you like, looking to him. It's been the great characteristic of all saints. Or take the teaching which our Lord gave us in that 18th chapter of Luke about the importunate widow. It's his own picture. The unjust judge. Who neither feared God nor men. But here's a widow woman with a case and she keeps on coming up to court. And always bringing her petition. And the man says, no, I neither fear God nor men. This woman's going to make life hell for me. I better grant a request. Go to God like that, says the Lord Jesus Christ. Who else would have dared to put it like that? He put it like that. The importunate widow. Go on. Don't merely start. Don't be content with just feeling occasionally, oh, I'd like this, and then make a spurt and then forget. Keep on and on and on. Don't give up. Oh, we must all of us become more like the patriarch Jacob at Peniel. You remember him there on that critical night. The night before the day when he was going to meet Esau. And his fear and foreboding. He'd sent everything across the stream ahead and there he was on his own. And the man came and began to struggle with him. And Jacob, sensing that this was God dealing with him, held on and said those immortal words, I will not let thee go. Except thou bless me. And that is the spirit, I say, that we must cultivate. The spirit of concentration, the spirit of importunity, the spirit that says, I will not let thee go. We must go on and on and on, seeking him, 
And as we do so, he will do various things to us. Leave it to him as regards the time. But just go on and tell him, Oh, may I borrow that word again of Thomas Goodwin. Sue him for it. And keep on doing so. Like the importunate widow and the unjust judge. And that brings me to my last principle. And this I think you will see at once again is another most vital matter. Responsiveness to his approaches We are being spiritual specialists this morning. We are dealing with very sensitive and very delicate matters. Or to vary my picture, we are on the Mount of God and the air is very pure and very rarefied. And slight changes are most important. So I say, there's nothing more important in this matter than being responsive to his approaches. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that you look for them. I mean that you wait for them. You see, it's possible for you to be so busy reading your scriptures and praying and doing all I've been saying, and you say nothing happens. A great deal may be happening, but that you've been so dull and so irresponsive and responsive that you don't realize what has been happening. You know, he may come at first very quietly and very gently, The Holy Spirit is compared to a dove, the most gentle of all the birds. And it's a wonderful picture of our blessed Lord also. He doesn't always manifest the fullness of his love. No, no, he just gives you very, very slight indication. Oh, I just appeal to you to draw upon your own experiences and recollections. Love can sometimes be expressed in just a look. The same eye that can look severe can look tenderly and lovingly. Just a slight flicker in the eye. And oh, what it has told us and what it brings to us. Do you know, my friends, our Lord deals with us like that? He is our heavenly lover and he manifests his love sometimes very faintly. Just a slight indication of it. And you and I should be looking for these things Don't say it must always come in one stereotype manner, not at all. He has his ways of manifesting his love. Be always on the lookout for the slightest manifestation. Never despise the day of small things. And therefore, the moment you feel the slightest drawing or indication of his love, act upon it at once. Oh, it will come in many ways. You may find it coming like this. You may find yourself reading a book, for instance, and not really thinking very much about this particular point, and suddenly while you're reading that book, you're aware of some urge, some call to prayer. Now, I say the whole essence of wisdom in this matter is Put down your book at that point, whatever it is, and get on your knees. Don't say, I'll finish the chapter and then I'll pray. If you do, you may find that the wonderful, glorious moment is gone and you can't recapture it. The moment you feel the slightest movement or indication of his love, respond, act, do something, yield to him, whatever he calls you to do, go at once and do it. 
And as you do that, you'll find he'll come more frequently. And the manifestations will be plainer and clearer. And then the day may come when it'll be glorious in its might and in its power. Let me, as I close, give you all this and put all this to you in the great warning about this very matter which you've got in the Song of Solomon in the fifth chapter. Let me read to you the first six verses of the fifth chapter of the book of Solomon, Song of Solomon. I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, O friends. Drink, yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. Now then, this is the important part. Here is the response of the bride. Her beloved, her bridegroom comes and he knocks at the door. She says, I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. For my head is filled with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. What does she say? There he is approaching, he's knocking at the door, he's calling unto her. She says, I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? It's her beloved that is there. But she says, you know, I was tired and I've had a heavy day and I've gone to bed. I've put my coat off. I've washed my feet. Are you really asking me to get up and put my coat on again and come to come to open the door? And I'll solve my feet. I'll have to wash them again. She wants him and yet, you see, it doesn't suit her convenience just now. She's tired. She wants to go to, a, to, go to sleep. She's half asleep and half awake. Um, I sleep but my heart waketh and she recognizes the voice but she can't really be troubled at this moment then he went further my beloved put in his hand by the hole of the door and my bowels were moved for him and having seen his hand you see in this way uh, she says, I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dropped with myrrh, and my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh, upon the handles of the lock. And she thought that she was going to find him and be ravished by his love. But this is what I read, I open to my beloved. But my beloved had withdrawn himself, and, had, and was gone. My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. And then it goes on to tell you how she sought him. She went out as she was and walked through the streets, and the people maltreated her, and she received chastisement and punishment, and was ill-used, but on and on she went. Thank God he hadn't left her forever. He was simply teaching her this great and central and all important lesson, that whenever he makes an approach, it is to be grasped at, to be held on to immediately with a ready response. Don't delay it, don't postpone it. Every indication, however faint, I say, thank him for it, run to him, receive him, do what he tells you. Be responsive to him. And as we are responsive to him, and his every approach. He will come more and more to us, and we shall find ourselves 
basking in the sunshine of his face, rejoicing in his embraces, and drinking in of his glorious and eternal love. There are the principles, my friends. You see what a delicate, sensitive thing it is. Oh, may God fill us with his spirit and with wisdom and with understanding that we may be alive and alert and sensitive. And so never find ourselves pleading with him frantically only to be told by him, I have approached you and revealed myself unto you, but you were so busy that you didn't recognize it. Or, he may put it like this, let me put it like this, he says, I stand at the door and knock. God forbid that there should be so much noise in the house and the home of our souls that we don't hear him. God forbid that there should, should be so much blaring of the spiritual wirelesses and televisions and all the rest of it and all the clatter and the clamor of the world that we don't hear him at all and leave him standing outside. Let us be sensitive. Let us be ready. Let us be ever listening and longing and waiting for him. And as we do so, he will most surely come and manifest himself to us. Amen.